This is Crime Connections, and we're your hosts. I'm Jackie. And I'm Sarah. On April 3rd of 1943, around 5.15 p.m., 55-year-old Patrick Brady returned to his 181st Street home from work in Lansing, Illinois. He worked at the local Inland Steel Company. Patrick shared his home with his 14-year-old foster daughter, Gloria Sullivan. When Patrick got out of his car to walk inside, he noticed a loud sound coming from outside of the house. As he approached the front door, he realized the noise was a radio blaring inside. Patrick made his way into the house and went straight for the kitchen. As he walked into the kitchen, he saw Gloria laying on the floor, not moving. When Patrick got a better look, he noticed that Gloria was dead on the floor and that her body was covered with stab wounds. At the age of four, Gloria, along with one of her older sisters, Theodora Sullivan, were placed in the care of the state. Their biological father, Clarence Sullivan, had abandoned the family, leaving the girl's mother, Viola, to care for the children on her own. Sadly, Viola found herself unable to do so, and the children were placed in the state's care. Only a few weeks later, Viola, Gloria's mother, passed away. Theodora was placed in the care of a family in Chicago, leaving Gloria alone in the state care. Patrick and his wife took Gloria in in 1935. They had attempted to legally adopt her many times, but because they were unable to locate Clarence, the adoption process was never finalized. However, the Bradys still considered Gloria as their own daughter. Sadly, in 1941, Patrick's wife passed away after a fight with cancer. Gloria continued to live with Patrick, taking on the role of housekeeper, as well as being the go-to babysitter for all the neighboring families. Gloria was an 8th grader at the Calvin Coolidge School. She excelled at school and, by all accounts, was an intelligent and happy girl. After finding Gloria dead on the kitchen floor, Patrick immediately called the police. Gloria was stabbed 20 times, 14 times in the back, 5 times in the chest, and once at the base of her throat. She also had defensive wounds on her arms and hands. Scratches were found on Gloria's right wrist and upper arm indicating that she tried to fend off the two kitchen knives. It was determined that she died from a stab wound to the heart. Gloria was fully clothed in her house dress with curlers in her hair. She showed no signs of sexual assault. Two different knives were used in the attack. One was a paring knife that was found laying close by, broken at the handle. The blade was discovered wedged in a crack in the hardwood kitchen floor. The other, a long-bladed butcher's knife, was also found laying nearby. Patrick was able to confirm that both knives were from the home's kitchen. Investigators found no evidence that a robbery had taken place, the house was in immaculate order, and $200 was found in the cash jar that was in the kitchen undisturbed. The front door was unlocked when Patrick had arrived home and it showed no signs of forced entry. The back door was locked and undisturbed. A bloody palm print was found on the bathroom tub. Next to the tub, Gloria's hairbrush was on the floor. The hairbrush was found to have long, blonde hair entangled in the bristles. This struck investigators as unusual since Gloria's hair was brown and Patrick's hair was short and graying. That's so weird. That's weird. I know. Yeah, so they're like confused on whose hair it was. They also found a bloody fingerprint on the wall in the bathroom along with a stack of bloody towels. The chief of police stated that two more bloody, well-defined fingerprints were found in the kitchen by where Gloria was found. 
Fingerprint experts compared these prints with those of the people that were questioned during the investigation, but unfortunately didn't match anyone. While the operatives of the Chicago Bureau of Identification were checking their records for possible identification, Van Lanningham added that these bloody prints are unquestionably those of the murderer. He also announced that there was another fingerprint found in the bathroom sink. And really quickly, Van Lanningham is the chief of police. Okay, okay. Uh, Investigators began by establishing a timeline of Gloria's last known movements. Patrick had left the house to go to work that morning around 8 a.m., and according to him, Gloria had asked for money to go shopping. He had given her some money and then left for work. At 9 a.m., Gloria phoned a friend from school who was 13-year-old Dorothy Wittig, which they were able to figure out by the operator's records. So in 1943, a home phone, when you called someone, you called the operator, and then you had to ask them to connect you to whoever you were wanting to call. Operators didn't go away until the 1950s, which is how we call now, and it goes straight to the number. According to Dorothy, Gloria asked if she wanted to go shopping for new Easter outfits in nearby Hammond, Indiana. Dorothy agreed and hopped on a bus to head to Gloria's house. Around the same time, a local laundry delivery service dropped off a load of clothes at Gloria's house. The delivery driver, Howard Dozier, was questioned, however, was quickly released when the police learned a neighbor had talked to Gloria after he had made the delivery. Viola Tobin, the neighbor, had walked across the street at around 9.30 to retrieve a vacuum cleaner that she had let Gloria borrow. According to her, she saw nothing that appeared to be amiss at the home and Gloria was acting like her usual self. At 10.20 a.m., Dorothy arrived at Gloria's house. According to her, the screen door was locked from the inside. She knocked on the door for five or so minutes, receiving no answer. Dorothy attempted to look through the windows, but claimed that she could not see inside because the curtains were shut tight. She told investigators that she did not remember if she heard a radio playing inside at the time. Which, to me, that would make it seem then there wasn't a radio because she would remember if it was loud enough because she would have thought about it, in my opinion. Yeah, so that means after that neighbor had talked to her and Dorothy had arrived, it's probably when it happened. Yep. I mean, she would probably remember the radio if it was playing, if, like, it was really noticeable as soon as her dad got out of the car. Exactly, yeah, because he kept saying, like, it was loud enough. The second he got out of his car, he could hear it. So I'm assuming she would have heard it too. Yeah. Investigators believe that because the screen door was locked from the inside at this time, Gloria's killer may have been inside when Dorothy knocked. Dorothy left Gloria's home and took the 10.30 a.m. bus to the mall approximately 10 miles away to go shopping alone. A magazine salesman was questioned after neighbors informed police they had saw him in the area around the time Gloria was murdered. However, he too was released after establishing an alibi. Friends of Gloria's were also questioned. However, none could provide any helpful clues as to the identity of Gloria's killer. The list of suspects began to dwindle and police turned to the public for help. A credible witness came forward claiming to have seen 52-year-old Clarence Sullivan, Gloria's biological father, on a bus near their home the week of the murder. Police immediately focused all of their attention on Gloria's estranged father, Clarence. 
According to Patrick, in 1935, he had learned Clarence was living in Kentucky. He attempted to make contact with him so he and his wife could legally adopt Gloria. However, he never heard anything back. Detectives located Theodora, Gloria's older sister, for questioning. Theodora, who was now 20 and living in Chicago, claimed that she had not talked to Gloria in nearly eight months. When questioned about her father, Clarence, she denied having any knowledge of his whereabouts. While police continued to search for Clarence, investigators located Gloria's diary. Inside, they found nothing unusual. However, Gloria had an entry saying that someone had tried to flirt with her recently, and the uh, unidentified person was questioned. However, his name was never revealed publicly, which means that he was never named a suspect. Or he was a minor. Like, Oh, yeah, that's true. He could have been a kid, and it was just like something where she was like a young girl, and she was excited. Oh, for sure. I think it was nothing. They just questioned him for whatever reason. The town of Lansing, Illinois spared no expense, but unfortunately, Gloria's case quickly went cold. Clarence, who investigators called their prime suspect, was never found. And then in 1950, Clarence was declared legally dead because he was never found by anyone, which I find strange that, I don't know, he could have ran off to Mexico for all they know. Well, also, like, he could have just back in the day like it was easier to like assume a different identity oh for sure because like we even covered the case where the man had a whole nother life after he killed his family yes exactly um but also like when you're declaring someone legally dead you would think that that's more of like maybe someone that fell off a boat in the middle of the ocean and there's a good chance they drowned or a shark ate them or something not some guy who will go off the like radar for a while because he's just sketchy you know yeah. not that i would say that there should be like an extenuating circumstance exactly you know other than that for sure well and if you think about it that's only seven years he went missing and they already declare him dead for like what reason right and, like, you'd still need to find, like, a body. It's not like he was, like, kidnapped and there was eyewitness stating that somebody, like, you know, took him. Exactly. That'd be one thing, you know, like, that's just really weird mm -hmm. that they would do that. Now, the next few things I will say are kind of weird because they don't give you dates. They only just, like, pretty much all this information I found from newspaper clippings that were uploaded. And so none of this came from, like, a website. It was kind of confusing because pretty much Gloria was laid to rest on April 7th in 1943 at the St. Mary Catholic Cemetery, which was the church they attended. And for the next four years, Patrick made frequent stops by the police station to inquire about the status of the investigation. And unfortunately, there was no updates or any information in regards to the case. It still was cold. And so... I think this took a huge toll on Patrick, and four years later, he passed away of a sudden heart attack at work, which is really sad. Nearly 80 years have passed now, leading one to believe that the murder of Gloria Sullivan will most likely never be solved. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, in the 1940s, there was little technology to get any forensic answers. So with it being almost 80 years old since her murder, I don't think it will ever be solved. Uh, I would assume that if there was any evidence, it is now gone. I highly doubt that they were organized enough to still have it. Um, 
But even if they did have that evidence, more than likely the killer would not be in any system because of the age of it. Uh, Right, unless they did something, you know, later on. Yeah. But even, like, I guess we would have to find, like, the date that CODIS was created to find out, like, realistically, would they be in those systems or... But I feel like if you're going to kill an 8th grader... I mean, the case was obviously not sexually motivated, in my opinion, because there was no sexual assault, like you said. And yeah. So what else would have been the motive besides maybe like a thrill attack? Because he didn't steal any, he or she never stole any money. They didn't sexually assault Gloria. So mm-hmm. like, what was the motive, you know? Yeah, I know. I, I honestly have no idea. Well, you know, there also is genealogy DNA that's more recent so like maybe they could find someone that was related to the killer yeah if they still had it but more than likely not but like you were saying they the police believe that gloria's biological father killed her which i'm confused by what is the motive of her dad killing her like he had no responsibility no attachments to her so why would he travel all the way to her yeah to just kill her like i don't understand that whatsoever and then to like mark him legally dead after seven years does not make sense yeah like at all yeah it's just very strange and then i was speaking with spencer my fiance about some possibilities scenarios because there are are a lot of theories and one is actually uh, a possible pedophile came in um and was trying to do something sexual but because the friend interrupted they did like a rage kill sort of thing yeah you know back in the day in the 1940s they didn't really from everything i've heard and people i've talked to they did not believe in like pedophiles and rape and you know what i mean like it wasn't nearly as much talked about as it is now talked about yeah and so it's like what if the guy down the road was super nice to all the kids and he secretly was a pedophile he came over acted like oh hey i want can i borrow some sugar or whatever it may be and she was like oh yeah come on in let me you know go get it for you because it showed or they said that there was no force entry so whoever the person is she knew them she had to have known yes and so like kids were not taught back then to be aware of people that they don't know and don't let people in. They were taught to, like, respect people and never question an adult, yes, like, authority. exactly. If it was a neighbor or someone local and they just acted, they did it all, and then they got out, they could have been like, oh, I'm going for a walk, let me walk on home. And no one would suspect anything. Right. You know? No, that's really sad. Yeah. And I know in April it's still cold enough to wear a jacket. So, like, if they had blood all over them, they could easily put a jacket over it, go home, and change. Well, it just, like, keeps bringing me back to that hairbrush, though. Because, I mean, there's a chance that maybe her friend Mm -hmm. spent the night and she used Gloria's hairbrush. Like, that's totally a possibility. But, like, that, the fact that they brought that up and talked about it, that's kind of, like... It sticks out to me. Like, why would you say that unless, you know, you had a good inkling that that somehow was related to the case? Okay, so DNA didn't come out until 1953. Okay, so that's 10 years later. It wasn't even widely used. Yeah, but it wasn't widely used until the 1980s. So 40 years later is when it was actually, like, widely used, which I would assume, because this... uh, Lansing, Illinois is a, considered a village. It's so small. And so I'm assuming they probably didn't get DNA testing uh, equipment until way later. Right. Would be my guess, you know? 
And so who knows? Because they, they were mentioning like DNA or they were testing the hair strand. And I didn't know what they meant by that because I know they didn't have DNA. So I don't know if they were like comparing it to people in her life or, or what they meant by that. With the theory I just spoke about, it's very pulling things out of thin air. Like there's really no evidence to it. Uh, but I did want to look into some statistics about sex offenders uh, just because like we were saying it was not really talked about back then and there wasn't any studies or any really knowledge I would say about it like there is nowadays and so I found that many sex offenders have committed multiple types of sexual crimes. A study conducted at the Colorado Department of Corrections on incarcerated sex offenders revealed the following. 78% of child molesters report that they also have sexually assaulted an adult. 52% of the adult rapists report that they have also sexually molested children. Approximately one-third, 36% of the sex offenders report assaulting both males and females. And then 64% of the child molesters who victimized their own relatives also sexually molested children who were not related to them. 53% of the children molesters who victimized children who were not related to them had also victimized children who were family members. So approximately 12 to 24% of sex offenders reoffend. When sex offenders commit another crime, it is usually not sexual or violent. Pretty much this is proving that they really, a lot of them do not care whether it is a child or an adult, a female or a male, or family or not, which is terrifying. Well, it's like a violence. They always say like sexual assault and like that kind of thing. It's about violence more so than it is about doing the crime it's the sexual act itself it's the power trip that someone gets yeah it's like about the control yeah and then i looked up some victimization statistics as well and it is estimated that nearly one in five women which would equal about 22 million in approximately one in 71 men which is about 1.6 million in the united states have been raped during their lifetime approximately 1.8 million adolescents in the united states have been the victims of sexual assault and as many as one in three girls and one in seven boys will be sexually abused at some point in their childhood children ages from 12 to 15 have the highest percentage of sexual abuse among all types of abuse for children under 18 years of age. 70% of child sex offenders have between one and nine victims, while 20% have 10 to 40 victims, which that's all crazy as well. And like I said, I'm not saying that it was a child molester, but I mean, even the cops were thinking maybe like there was someone in the neighborhood that they don't know about. Um, nowadays, I've read some theories and people are thinking around the same thing. So I just figured I'd give some statistics to just show you how unfortunately common it is um, in children, especially. But like we were saying, there was so much anger in this killing. Uh, stabbing someone 20 times is definitely overkill. And I looked into the word overkill and what it means when a murderer does overkill and the belief is that more evidence there is of overkill the greater the likelihood that the victim knew the perpetrator this belief may be common among investigators for instance retired homicide investigator richard a pickett stated that the presence of overkill suggests a crime of passion and that in 99 percent of the overkill cases the perpetrator knows the victim Jeez. And that's really all I have. I just thought this was crazy. It's 
a super old case. There is literally no information other than news clippings, which I thought was definitely interesting um, to look into. Yeah, it was a little difficult, but I still got a ton of information from the news. I had to just print them all out and then highlight it so I could figure it out what was going on. But it's just sad because this little girl never got justice for being stabbed 20 times. Like, I can't even imagine what Patrick went through. Right. Um, so time is not our friend when it comes to cases like these. But if you, by chance, know of anything, please call the Lansing, Illinois Police at 708-895-7150. With any information that you possibly know, it's very unlikely, but I thought I would put it in there just in case. Um, thank you guys for listening. As always, go like or follow us on Facebook at Crime Connections or on Instagram at Crime Connections Pod. If you have any cases you would like us to cover or look into, please email us or DM us on any of our social media platforms. We would love to cover anything that you guys are interested in. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys.